1: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Hi, everyone. It's Nick from the Nature Podcast here. Most of the team are out on assignment at the moment, so we've got a little bit of an abbreviated show this week. Later on, Nisha Gaines will be joining me for a special extended news chat. But before that, Benjamin Thompson is heading back to 1989 to hear about a big claim that ultimately came to nothing.
0: 30 years ago, two US-based researchers claimed to have seen evidence of something extraordinary. Chemists Stanley Pons and Martin Fleischman announced to the world that they'd seen signs of hydrogen atoms fusing to create helium. What they described is called nuclear fusion. It's the process that powers the sun, and it produces a huge amount of energy. But the temperatures and pressures involved there are astonishingly high, making fusion difficult to achieve here on Earth. That hasn't stopped people trying, though, and for years researchers have been attempting to create miniature suns in huge, expensive facilities. But Pons and Fleischmann didn't use one of those they said they'd managed to get fusion to happen in a rather different way, in what looks, three decades
3: later, to be a famous example of wishful thinking. Here's science writer Phil Ball. The claim was that this had been achieved using benchtop chemistry. So that was really, really extraordinary, because normally you need the huge apparatus that maintains these incredibly hot environments in order to get the nuclei to fuse together, whereas this benchtop chemistry didn't need any of that. The pair claimed to have achieved so-called cold fusion by running an electrical current through a relatively simple apparatus. And they said that they had just done this process and that they had measured a large output of heat from that process. In fact, more heat, more energy was coming out than they were feeding in with the electrical current. And this would have been huge. The notion that you could achieve nuclear fusion this way and create a source of abundant energy, this simply, was extraordinary. Literally would have revolutionised energy production. It would have given us a source of abundant, clean energy. Ultimately, their claims didn't hold water, and cold
0: fusion never really got off the ground. But it certainly captured the imagination of the scientific
3: world at the time. It was a very exciting time, without a doubt, because, you know, if these claims were right, that in itself was exciting. But the whole scientific community, certainly the physical sciences, were buzzing with this idea because, you know, this was something that physicists had been trying to do for decades, so they were really interested. Chemists were jubilant at first that they had beaten physicists to it, it seemed. Phil was working in the physical sciences team at Nature when Pons and Fleischmann first went public. The claims were first announced pretty much out of the blue in March of 1989 in a press conference, which these days in science, it's, you know, it's not that unusual to hear bold, striking new claims announced in a press conference before the work has actually been published. In those days, it was a very unusual thing to do, and it raised a lot of eyebrows. You know, a huge claim like this means that people want to see exactly what is done. They want to see the results. What they really want is a paper recording all the technical details of what was done, and there was nothing of this sort that Fleischmann and Pons were presenting. However, they did have a paper, and very shortly after the press conference, they submitted it to Nature for peer review.
0: According to Phil, the reviewers didn't dismiss the findings, but they had questions.
3: They wanted more details of exactly what Pons and Fleischmann had done. When they saw the referees' comments, they declined to resubmit. They said they'd rather focus on doing further studies to verify what they had done so that paper was withdrawn and it never resurfaced and there never really was a clear thorough detailed explanation of what those guys had done and you know that was really the problem all along pons and Fleischmann's paper never did see the light of day
0: they did publish a short paper in the journal of electroanalytical chemistry but it too was lacking in detail In the months that followed, Nature published a series of follow-up papers by other groups, none of which found any evidence of cold fusion. The discovery was quickly labelled a false alarm. However, despite all the evidence to the contrary, there remained those who were committed to the idea that the phenomenon was real.
3: The prize, the goal was so big that it was very hard to let go of. And Pons and Fleischmann were certainly standing by their claims. So there was a small community of people who were sure that there was something in here worth investigating. So, really, over years and years and now decades, you know, there has been this small contingent of people determined to find something worth hanging on to here. But nothing has ever emerged in the general scientific literature that has persuaded people.
0: So here we are, 30 years on. And this week, Nature has published a peer-reviewed perspective article from a group of researchers funded by Google. They've been revisiting cold fusion experiments with the aim of testing previous claims in a rigorous and reproducible way. Spoiler alert, they didn't see any evidence of cold fusion. But their work does tell us how scientists can study the very challenging experimental conditions under which it might occur, and offer some advances in material science that could be useful for future energy research. But... Phil thinks there is more than just scientific clarity to be gained from reassessing 30 years of cold fusion research.
3: Looking back at how cold fusion unfolded 30 years ago, it didn't make science look terribly good, that it had made this incredibly bold claim that didn't stand up to scrutiny. It made it look to some people as though scientists didn't really know what they were doing. In terms of the personal dynamics and politics of how that happened, there are things worth learning. I think that what we saw was a quick polarisation between the true believers in cold fusion and all the sceptics. And I think that There will be claims like this that come along from time to time and we need to find ways of maintaining dialogue rather than sort of isolating and ostracising really the scientists who make them. If we can think more carefully about how to avoid this sort of polarisation when big claims are made, science would benefit.
2: That was Phil Bull, who's written a worldview on the cold fusion story, which you'll find over at nature.com along with the new perspective article. Last up on the show, it's time for a special extended news chat. Joining me today is Nisha Gained, Nature's European Bureau Chief. Hi, Nisha. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining me. So, first up, we've got a story about a ranking of universities by gender balance. Nisha, what's going on here?
4: So we've got this university league table called the Leiden Ranking and it's quite well known. It measures universities by their scientific performance. And this year, for the first time, they've added something called the Gender Indicator, which measures universities' gender balance.
2: So how do you work out what the gender balance is?
4: So this Gender Indicator looks at the whole of a university's research output and it counts up every author on these research papers And it uses an algorithm to determine whether an author is a man or a woman. And it calculates, based on that, the proportion of a university's research authors who are women.
2: Right. And is this a good way to work out who are men and who are women? Because, for instance, I've got friends who are also called Nick who are women.
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. So the indicator uses quite a widely used algorithm called the Gender API which has a way to determine the gender of a name. But of course, there are limitations. The people who created the indicator note that one particular limitation applies to Asian names because the algorithm is not quite as good at determining gender of those names. So they give the caveat that the scores that they find for universities in Asia could be affected by this limitation.
2: Right so this is how it's done. What did it find?
4: so the results are quite interesting and they support previous types of work in in this area and they find that institutes in South America and Eastern Europe do quite well in this gender balance ranking and in fact the top ten is dominated by universities in these regions
2: and do we know why that might be
4: so outwardly it seems like a very good thing that you have lots of women in your university because science is always striving to improve gender balance but actually in these regions it seems to be down to something that is a little bit more problematic one of the ideas that has been posited is that science jobs in these places might pay comparatively low wages which means that men are often found in other more high paying positions in other sectors
2: what about the so-called leading universities how are they doing
4: If we look at what are considered the typically most research-intensive universities, which are places in the United States, in the UK, in China, Japan and in Sweden, they are really widely spread throughout this ranking. So some do very well, about 40% of their authors are women, some do pretty poorly and they have only about 20%
2: of their authors who are women. So there's a big spread. What's the hope for this ranking? How might it better help achieve gender parity?
4: League tables can be quite controversial and are often not always viewed positively. But in this case, people who study gender in science say that actually, this is a really big step. And it's very positive to have this type of metric in a major global ranking, because universities often look to indicators like this to set their goals. And it means that these metrics could have really immediate effects on how university administrators run their institutions.
2: Moving on to our second story, we're talking about the closure of the Sanger Animal Facility. Nisha, what can you tell me about this?
4: Yeah, see, so this is a story from the Wellcome Sanger Institute, which is one of the UK's top genomics institutes. And they have announced this month that they are going to close their animal research facility, which is known as one of the best in the world. It's got very sophisticated equipment. The facility sends mouse strains to researchers all over the world. So a lot of people rely on this facility.
2: So why have they decided to close it?
4: So the Institute says that the closure is a consequence of a move towards using alternative technologies in genetics research. And they talk about things like cell lines and organoids, which are these 3D biological structures that can be grown in a dish. And they also say that they have changed the direction of their research a little bit. So they are focusing on different types of genetics research that doesn't involve animals, for example, sequencing plant species and so on.
2: Right, and what's been the reaction of the scientists?
4: So some people in the science community have reacted quite strongly to this news and some researchers worry that it's too soon for Sanger to be closing or scaling back their animal research and that it might even curtail the centre's ability to do cutting-edge science.
2: And why do they think this?
4: So we've spoken to several geneticists who say that this type of research still really relies on animal models, especially mice, and that it's quite important for complex diseases like cancer, where it benefits researchers to be able to see how whole organisms interact. And some researchers say that other institutes are in fact stepping up the amount of animal research that they do. But overall, the reaction has been that mouse models are still irreplaceable. They haven't been replaced by complex data sets yet.
2: So was there anyone in favour of such a move?
4: Yes, there has been some reaction from people who are not particularly surprised at the move and they say that the current trend in biology is indeed to move towards these more in vitro systems to study human biology, which supports the Welcome and Sanger's view.
2: Well, a few months ago, scientists raised concerns about the welfare of animals at the facility. Do we know if this has anything to do with the closure?
4: Yeah, that's right. So there has been what seems to be a quarrel between some scientists at Sanger and the leadership at Sanger. And we know that six months ago, there were scientists who work at this animal facility who had raised concerns about animal welfare there. Sanger said that they responded to those concerns and they put in place changes that meant that welfare standards were kept at the appropriate levels. Uh, And they also say that this Closure has nothing to do with these concerns and it is to do with the changes in the direction of biological research.
2: So for our last story in this special extended news chat we're talking about scientists setting a forest on fire. I'm assuming this isn't just a fit of pyromania. Nisha what's going on here?
4: Yeah, this is a very interesting experiment and very fitting because, as we know, there have been massive wildfires in North America in the past few years that have really ravaged particular regions. So in a bid to research fire and smoke and what happens in these instances, researchers are going to set a fire on purpose sometime in late June in a forest in Utah.
2: So is this going to be a very realistic representation of a wildfire?
4: So that's a good question. Obviously, it's difficult to truly mimic natural circumstances, but the scientists behind the experiment say that they are going to do that. They're going to mimic a natural wildfire and it is expected to burn as intensely as those fires typically do.
2: So what's the hope here? What are they trying to achieve by studying this wildfire?
4: So... Overall, these researchers want to measure as much as they possibly can uh, and collect as much data as they can. But chiefly, they are interested in looking at how smoke plumes rise from a blaze. That's important because it means that they should be able to improve forecasts of where smoke will spread and how it will affect people's homes and health, which are obviously some of the things that are most badly affected when there are wildfires.
2: So you said they're collecting loads of data. How are they going to go about it, Nisha?
4: So in this experiment, the researchers are going to be using drones and radar equipment to do things like record the flames on video, measure the temperature of the forest as it burns, as well as probe the shape and density of these smoke plumes as they rise. And some drones will actually fly directly into smoke plumes. But this experiment is also part of a broader push to start monitoring wildfires. So there are also some other efforts to use planes to fly over naturally occurring wildfires to try and gather data there as well.
2: So what are the researchers involved saying?
4: Firstly, it's a really interesting and ambitious experiment. And one researcher says it takes a lot of guts to light this kind of fire. But overall, they are excited that they are going to get so much data because they're going to study this fire so intensely and really that it's the first time any fire has been targeted so comprehensively.
2: Well, we'll have to keep an eye on that burning story as it develops. Nisha, thanks for joining me. Listeners, if you want to read more about those stories, you can find them over at nature.com news. That's it for this week's show. We'll be back next time with a regular edition of the Nature Podcast. I've been Nick Howe. Thanks for listening.
1: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.